Well, uh, we are starting a new study today. We finished up Revelation. And now we're going to be in the clean part of your Bible, the part that you don't read much, where there, you don't have every other paragraph highlighted like you do in Romans or John. Uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah, okay? Nehemiah uh, is a book about rebuilding after a national disaster. <laughs> and uh, imagine this, you know, that God actually has a book in the Bible that is written to His people to teach them how to rebuild and restore after things have been destroyed and torn down in a national calamity. Now, I don't know what that would possibly have to do with anything that we've experienced over this last year. But nevertheless, hopefully you catch my sarcastic tone. Um, nevertheless, I think this book has a whole lot to say to us. It was written a long time ago in a very, to a very different kind of situation after a very different kind of calamity. But nevertheless, it has a lot to say to us about how to respond, how to be restored as the people of God, how to rebuild what has been torn down and what has been broken uh, in a national calamity. Um, we have not experienced, as I said, the same kind of calamity that the people uh, that Nehemiah has, was originally written to have. They were taken captive and hauled off into exile as slaves. I don't believe any of us have had that experience. They uh, had their city completely leveled and destroyed. We've not had that experience. But we have had this one. We have lost people, lost touch with people that we love. We aren't yet able to enjoy the kind of close personal relationships and contact with, with people that make life really enjoyable. We have had to limit things like Super Bowl parties and Christmas gatherings and Thanksgiving celebrations. Now, we don't even necessarily all get to come into this building to worship. I told the first service, when all this is over, I'm going to go through this whole building maskless and hug everybody. Because I miss being able to do that. I miss the freedom and the joy of, of being able to put an arm around somebody who's outside your family, who's not part of your little bubble that we all kind of gotten established for ourselves over the last year. And on top of that, we have had many people that we know that have been sick. Some of us have gotten sick. A few of us have been to the hospital. And you can't even go into the hospital. I can't even go into the hospital. They let me in to secure wards where they have people in plastic bubbles on a normal basis. But during this, I haven't been even allowed in to see anybody. It's been a tough year. Some of us have lost family members and haven't been able to mourn properly. 
because you can't even have a funeral with a big group of people. That being said, I believe that God is still at work. Amen? God is still at work, and He is soon going to help us to rebuild and to repair much of what has been lost. And we're going to see a restoration. We're going to see God work to rebuild all of the things that we have had to sacrifice over this last year. But there is a process of getting from where we are to where we need to go. And it begins, as Nehemiah shows us in chapter 1, with prayerfulness on the part of God's people. And so I want to show you the first chapter of Nehemiah it's a short, short chapter, just 11 verses. But if you would, uh, please uh, stand with me as I read God's Word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile was in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, at the, at the conclusion now, it's been almost about 11 months of a long and trying year where the very thing we want to do is to draw near to one another and huddle close to each other and hug on each other is the very thing we're forbidden to do because of the risk of disease and possibly death. At a time when much 
in our society has been lost when the sins of our our fathers and our father's house and even of our own generation and us have come due and we are seeing the effects all around us. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to be renewed and to be restored. Just as this chapter in this book talk about. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when Nehemiah was written, it had been 140 years since Jerusalem was a walled city with some prominence in the world. Uh, when Nehemiah begins, he says, in the 20th year, he means the 20th year of Emperor Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire. Uh, the biggest part of the nation of Israel at this time that this book is written is still scattered across the Middle East in exile. All of it is under the boot heel of the Persians, uh, the Persians are the third world empire under which uh, the people of Israel had suffered uh, since their exile. If you remember your history, you, you know that in the year 722 B.C., the northern kingdom with its capital at Samaria was carted off into exile by the Assyrians. And then about 150 years later in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah, which included Judah and Benjamin and Simeon and the biggest part of the Levites, uh, with the capital at Jerusalem, is all also carted off into exile by the Babylonians. And then fast forward a few years and uh, the Babylonians are overthrown. Remember the handwriting on the wall? Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians. And the Persians had a humane policy of letting people who wanted to return to their homeland. And so 70 years previous to Nehemiah, some portion of the folks in exile had returned, but a relatively small group, roughly 50,000 people, had returned from where they were scattered in exile back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah then is 70 years after that. So they were in exile 70 years. Some went back, and then now this is 70 years later, 140 years since the city fell. They are a long way, those who went back are a long way from the glories of the United Kingdom under. David and Solomon. There's worship at the temple that's been restored recently, but that's the only part of post-exile life that resembles what it was like before, and the temple itself, such as it is, is not as glorious as it was before. In fact, it's likely that by this time the Ark of the Covenant is gone, The temple, when it's rebuilt, is smaller and much less ornate and much less glorious than it was when it was originally constructed by Solomon. In fact, the old-timers who remembered what the temple was like 
when they went into exile, when they came back and they saw the temple being rebuilt, cried because it was so disappointing from what they remembered. And so it's into that situation that God is working through Nehemiah. And in verses 1 to 4, we meet Nehemiah. He is an official at the court of the Persian emperor, Artaxerxes. It's the month of Chislev, which is, uh, includes part of our November and part of our December. It's the 10th month of the Jewish calendar. Uh, Nehemiah is serving at the Winter Palace there in Susa. Uh, and this is the favorite palace of the Persian emperor. It's roughly 850 miles from Jerusalem. 850 miles. And one day, Nehemiah's brother comes to see Nehemiah with some other Jewish men that have come back from Jerusalem, and they come bearing bad news that the remnant that had returned there is in serious trouble, and they are completely unprotected. The old city walls lie in ruins. The gates to the walls are charred remnants, and they offer no protection to anyone from anything. And so in response to that, Nehemiah does what every believer in the living God ought to do when confronted by a crisis, and that is that he prayerfully seeks the Lord. His automatic response to his distress over the news of where his people are and what has happened to them is weeping and mourning and fasting and praying. Because he is he is distressed over what he has heard. So he seeks the Lord. And understand, it's been 140 years. That's the same distance in time, by the way, between you and me and the James A. Garfield administration. And you may be going, who's that? He was president for about nine months. They got assassinated by a guy named Charles Guiteau. Okay, but he's one of those guys with the big whiskers there at the end of the of the 19th century that you they just all kind of blend together. Like is that is that Chester Arthur? Is that Grover Cleveland? Is that Garfield? Who is that guy? I don't know. They're just kind of these these fellows that we know nothing about, right? 140 years ago. Nehemiah was almost certainly born in Persia. It's also almost certain that he has never been to Jerusalem. Never in his life. He is, as we'll see, a man of high status, of great power, of great position and wealth. But he's also a godly man. A man who knows that Israel and what happens to her is absolutely critical, not only for her own people, but for the salvation of the world, because this people are those through whom Messiah will come. And so he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays to God. And notice he doesn't simply do it one day. He doesn't just do this one day. Do you see it there in the text? I sat down... I wept and mourned 
and fasted for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He repeatedly seeks the Lord over the course of several days. You know, I, I titled this section in your outline that he prayerfully seeks the Lord. And it's because prayerfulness is a little different than praying, right? Lots of us pray. I remember being in high school and praying, God, let me pass biology, <laughs> right? And this kind of thing, you're going to shoot these little arrows up when you're in need, right? But Nehemiah exhibits a life of prayerfulness, that this is the regular habit of his life, that he's continually seeking the Lord. And he exhibits it here, that he's continually seeking the Lord over several days. And it's the, he's the kind of person I want to be, actually, by God's grace. I would be not just a person who prays, but a person who is prayerful and who is constantly responding to whatever comes my way in the way that Nehemiah does by constantly, persistently, prayerfully seeking the Lord. And we have in this book the blessing of reading a condensed version, I think, of one of his prayers. And it gives us a model to follow of how to pray, which, you know, lots of people have wondered, well, how do I pray? You know, prayer is talking to God. Well, okay, but how do you do that? And there is a, there is a, a an awareness, or there ought to be, that when you're coming to God, it's not like uh, flopping down next to your buddy on the couch and just saying, hey, what's up, right? You're going to come to God. You're going to come before the Lord of all creation. How are you going to do that? What's the right way? What kind of models can you follow? And the scripture gives us constant models to follow and actually words to use, which is great because it's very helpful to me, uh, even though you probably think uh, this is a guy who never has uh, labored long under the burden of an unexpressed thought, um, but which is true. But I also sometimes when I come to God, I don't know what to say or how to pray. And Nehemiah gives us a model. Verse 5 is the beginning of Nehemiah's prayer, and he uh, addresses God with reverence and worship. Do you see that? If you look at it, he is respectfully aware of the fact that, that God is God and he is a mere man. But he also praises God as the God who is in loving relationship with him. And so you've got reverence and awe and also, and we're in this wonderful loving relationship that we enjoy together. So he holds both of those things together as he prays. He begins by saying, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. If you look in your Bible closely, and you may need to pull out your glasses as I need to pull out mine often uh, when I read my Bible, you'll see that the word Lord that's there is in all capital letters. And that's because 
that is meant to indicate to you in English that that is the equivalent of the Hebrew word that's there. That's the Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. The, it's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses out of the bush when he said, I am. It's what Jesus is repeating when he makes his I am statements in the New Testament. When he says, I am the bread of life, before Abraham was, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate for the sheep. I am. Right? And so he's recognizing that who this God that he's addressing is. You know, just like Jesus taught us to do when he says, Our Father relationship, who art in heaven glory. There's a reverence to that. And this is not just the God, this is not just any old God, this is Yahweh, the God who spoke from the bush. This is the great I Am, the God of heaven, the great uh, God who is awesome in power, whose very name says that He is the one who was and who is and who is to come. And so Nehemiah addresses Him that way with reverence and awe. And at the same time, he refers to him, do you see this? As the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love Him and keep His commandments. He's the God with whom I'm in relationship. And we don't have, there's another great Hebrew word that's here. Uh, when it's, it's translated steadfast love, it's the Hebrew word hesed which is hard for us to translate, but it's the idea of uh, that God's love is, is an unfailing. It's steadfast. It's not dependent on uh, necessarily the faithfulness of the recipient, but is something which is given as a result of the character of God. That God is the God who loves us even when we're disobedient. And He keeps His covenant of love with us. He keeps His covenant with His people. And it's a beautiful recognition, this introduction to His prayer is, is, the, is the fact that there is the God that we address is not merely the one who loves us and made a covenant with us, although He surely is that. But He is also the transcendent and all-powerful God who rules over all things. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the great and awesome God, the God who speaks in fire. And so there's a reverence to coming to God along with a relationship that we enjoy because He initiated. And then in verses 6 and 7, we continue. Nehemiah continues his prayer with repentance for sin. Because when you come before God and you really recognize who He is, the, one of the immediate things that you become aware of is how unholy you are. And so, as Isaiah, you know, in Isaiah chapter 6 stands before God, he says, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, right? Nehemiah 
does the same thing. He becomes aware as he comes into God's presence of his own sin and the sin of his own people, and so he begins confessing. And the prayer that he persistently is offering for his people over these days and nights, he's confessing. And notice what he does. He confesses even to national sins, some of which have occurred more than 140 years previously, and he includes himself among the people who need forgiveness. He says, look at the text, even I and my father's house have sinned. He includes himself in the sin that got them exiled, even though it happened in his great-great-grandfather's time. You see that? It's a good thing. It recognizes that Nehemiah and his father's house aren't cut from some different kind of cloth, that they are the same kinds of people, the same kinds of sinners as God exiled 140 years previously. And so even though he doesn't have an equal share in their sins, that they too are sinners like them and they're descended from them. And notice that, too, that he continues confessing as a member of a sinful people to all of the things that they have sinfully done. He says, look at your Bible again. It says, we. We, meaning me and us, have acted very corruptly against God and not kept his commandments and statutes and his rules. And when crisis comes to a nation as it has come to our nation, we are in the midst of a crisis right now. One of the things that is vital that we do is recognize that in some measure, it is connected in some way to us and to our sin. And prayerfully seek the Lord. And a big part of that prayer needs to include confession for our own sin and confession for the sins of our people and the sins of our nation. And not just the ones that are popular to confess. You know, we, I don't know if you've noticed, but here in recent years, the last several years, I've seen I've seen you know groups of people who come together and they they want to confess to things they had nothing to do with, and then so they want to they want to confess to you know to this thing in the past or that thing in the past, but they don't have any reverence for God and they don't have any weeping or tears and they don't include themselves in it. They don't recognize themselves as being equally like the people they are confessing for. We, God's people, and our nation, have departed from what we know to be God's commands. Amen? And so when we do our confession, we ought to do so with genuine repentance, with actual tears, 
and mourning and fasting and prayer. I want to turn our attention to the next few lines of Nehemiah's prayer too, where he remembers God's promises. And I think verses 8 through 10 are both really beautiful and really necessary. They're, they're really beautiful because they recall the permanence of God's promises and the ongoing covenant that God has with Israel in spite of their disobedience to him. And despite the fact that their sin resulted in the exile in which they're now living. So he, he mentions that. He says, God, you told us we would go into exile if we sinned against you. And we did, and here we are. Right? But then he also says, and you also promised that even if we were scattered to the farthest reaches of the heavens, that you would bring us back. Guess what, God? We're scattered to the furthest reaches of the heavens. Not literally. But they are scattered all across the Middle East. All across the Middle East. He says, I'm claiming your promise to bring us back. To bring us back. You know, it's fascinating that Nehemiah, in this part of his prayer, he says to the Lord to remember, which is funny if you think about it, right? That he who has never learned anything or forgot anything, as if you're addressing him as if he needs to be reminded, <laughs> right? I don't think that Nehemiah thinks God is slow and needs reminded of anything. But I think it's Nehemiah's way, if you will forgive me, of claiming the right to ask for what he's about to ask for. Because he's about to make a bold request, and he knows, and he's very aware of the sin that got him in the situation in which he and his people now find themselves. And he says, you know, look, Lord, in spite of all of our sin, you've made us great promises. And so I'm about to ask you for something that we don't deserve and haven't earned, but you promised us you'd bring us back. And so I'm going to claim that promise. And I think God honors that very thing. In fact, over and over in Scripture, you see God's people on the one hand sorrowfully admitting to their sin and confessing it, and then immediately following that up with a powerful proclamation of God's promises and and his covenant, and they're calling on God's grace to fulfill his covenant. He's saying, Lord, I know we haven't kept our end, but you've kept yours. And so I'm calling on you to keep your end in restoring, just as you promised you would. It's Nehemiah's request for grace. The grace he knows is freely available from a gracious God because his steadfast love and his covenant never fail. And I think in that there's a model for us. Because we have lived through and are living through a time of crisis for our people and we need to both confess our sins and also claim God's promises and the covenant forgiveness that we have 
also been promised and also received. Amen? Because I don't know about you, but when, when I feel really authentically guilty over sin, and I, and I have and I do, one of the things I have trouble remembering is God's forgiveness over that thing, whatever it was. And, and it's not God who needs a reminder, it's me who needs a reminder that my relationship with Him is still restored and still renewed when I confess God is there because His covenant is everlasting. His promises are always good. And it gives us then the opportunity and the right because we have been forgiven to make our requests. And that's what you see in verse 11 as Nehemiah making his request. After all these things that he has prayed, he concludes uh, by a request for God's deliverance. He's about to go in before the emperor, the most powerful man on earth at this time. And he asks, therefore, that, that God would give him success and mercy as he goes in. And it's only at the end of this passage, at the end of his prayer, that we find out who Nehemiah is and what his position is. Find out that he's cupbearer to the king, which is a position of tremendous power and tremendous influence, tremendous wealth, and uh, tremendous access. See, if you were the king's cupbearer, we don't have that role really in our society, thank God. Um, but you were literally the guy that put the wine into a cup and, to, and put it into the hand of the king. You were the guy who tasted his wine because poisoning was a really popular way to get rid of kings. Uh, and uh, you would be the guy who is essentially putting your life on the line for the king. You were with him 24-7, 365, and so you were in a position of enormous trust. The person that he trusted most, trusted literally with his life, would be the cupbearer. And so you became, because of that access and, and um, proximity to the king, you became very powerful, very influential as an advisor because this is you have to be the man he trusts with his life. And so you become something akin to the chief of staff or the prime minister. And it's clear that Nehemiah is troubled and he wants to do something to help his people, but he is still humble enough, wise enough to realize that what he's about to do is not a guaranteed thing. And he needs God to move the heart of the Persian emperor. And so he asks that God would do so. And by the way, isn't that a great thing? That the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he can direct it wherever he chooses. Wherever he chooses. And this guy is a pagan this guy is not a worshiper of the true God. He has a harem in the hundreds of women. He has uh, enormous wealth. There is nothing in all of his kingdom from Greece to India that he cannot acquire and do, that he does not have power over. He is the most powerful man on planet Earth, ruling over the biggest empire the world had seen to that time. 
And Nehemiah says, you know what? I can ask the Lord and he can cause that guy to do whatever he chooses. And that's where the chapter ends. There's a lot more to the story and we've only begun to tell it. But in the meantime, I want to encourage us all to learn from Nehemiah's example and to powerfully, prayerfully seek the Lord here in 2021. There's not a guarantee that everything that we want to do is going to come to pass in this year. It's not a guarantee that um, that churches will be allowed to just reopen as before. That we'll be allowed to do everything we want to do. That everything will be back to normal in July or whatever. None of that's guaranteed. Now on top of that, we as a nation, even when this pandemic is over, we'll still be a nation in crisis because the bill for our sins, such as they are, is coming due all around us. As families and marriages disintegrate, as we still abort 650,000 infants every single year, because we are concerned more about sexual autonomy than we are about godliness. We still are people wracked with sin. And guess what? It's not just all out there. Those people out there, those non-Christians. It's in the church. It's in our church. And we need repentance and renewal and restoration and rebuilding and repair. Amen? We do. So let's follow Nehemiah's example and let's prayerfully seek the Lord together today and in this year. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, you are great and awesome and glorious and powerful. You made the heavens and the earth. You um, declare the end from the beginning. You have set things in motion which no man can stop. And you will bring to fruition all of your plans and purposes no matter what human opposition may encounter. And Father, from that great and glorious position, as God, you nevertheless condescend to come into our world by your Son and to save creatures you made from the dust of the ground and made in your image. Father, you love us with an everlasting love. You bought us with the blood of your Son. You sealed us with your Holy Spirit and you have brought us into relationship with you and called us your sons. And Father, in the presence of such great and a glorious God, we can do nothing immediately except confess. Father, our sins have reached higher than our heads. 
I and my Father's house are sinned. Father, we have been, all of us, racist against people who are not like us. We have isolated ourselves from people who we don't look like and said and thought of them things that we would not say and think of them if they did look like us. Father, we have desired to separate sex from commitment. And so we have aborted 60 million people over the last 50 years. We have dis- declared that your standard for marriage doesn't matter, that, it's, that your word is irrelevant, and we allow any combination of people to get married, even though you said, through your son, in the beginning, God made them male and female. And therefore, man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, what God is joined together, let not man separate. And yet, Father, we divorce by the millions. Father, we, though your word says that if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart, We lust on a daily basis over people who do not belong to us. Many of us, Father, have indulged a desire for these things through our computer screens, through our phones, through magazines and movies, through romance novels and outright pornography. We have pursued relationships, Father, that that you do not approve and that did not enter your mind. Father, we have desired our neighbor's goods and longed to have them become ours and even devised political systems to bring about the seizure of our neighbor's property and its deliverance to our hands. Father, we are wicked people. But we are wicked people who are loved by a loving and gracious God. And we pray, Father, for your forgiveness. We pray that you would cause repentance and renewal to come first to us, your church. And then that it might spread out from your people, your church, those who name the name of Jesus, that the gospel would spread out with with us, Father, and for your repentant people, carrying good news and renewal and new life and hope to a wicked nation that is turned away from you. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God who says, if you return to me, I will return to you. And that your promises are new every morning. And Father, we ask as we are in this year, 
when we stand on the edge of the pandemic ending, but when many of the problems of our society will not end. Father, we pray that you would move in a mighty way. We pray that you would use us, your people, to bring about transformation and renewal, first with ourselves and then with our community. Father, we ask that you would make us your prayerful people who weep and mourn and fast over the disaster that has befallen us and who yet carry with us in our own souls the filling of the Spirit which enables transformed life and is eager to tell other people how they can be transformed too. Father, we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus who gave his life for us and in the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit who seals us for the day of redemption and testifies with our spirit that we are your children. Amen.